coming up in this episode of Finding Common Ground. People will make you think that white Europeans came to Africa and picked my ancestors out of a tree. What happens when you find common ground? You can start digging deeper into some of these subjects. And these are the subjects, Bill, that has divided this country. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and you and I don't have enough sense or we're too bold enough to say, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna talk about it. There are two sides to every coin. How do we deal with racial issues when they affect relationships? Finding common ground on all those issues that we come against. There's black and there's white. And I think as Christians, we have to learn how to get together because we're not in heaven. I've met more interesting people just by God just bringing them in. Republicans and Democrats. But a lot of times when it comes to race and it comes to culture and it comes to perception, Even as Christians, we don't always understand. We look at it through our lenses. There's Bill. I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland called Parma. Uh, Any black people in Parma? There was not one. Not one black person, Bill? Not one. Come on, Bill, you got to have one, a token black person, a token. And there's Odell. I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, public housing, single mom, divorced single mom with four kids. And I came up through segregation and all that kind of stuff. If a black person drove through the town, the police would stop and escort them out. Bill and Odell are finding common ground. A part of what we have to do is listen to each other, find the common ground, and question, not questioning you like you're on a witness stand, but questioning you for a better understanding. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for today. Thank you for uh, Black History Month uh, that we're going through and learning the history of the Blacks in America and uh, the circumstances they came into uh, for the last couple centuries that they were, were here. Lord, uh, there's such a rich history. Uh, We thank you for that. We thank you for watching over them as they were slaves and as they're free people. Lord, uh, we lift up uh, our nation as we go through trials and tribulations. Lord, uh, thank you for my friend Odell, who's teaching me much. Amen. Father God, we just say thank you for grace and mercy. Thank you for just friendship and understanding, God. God, thank you that you will continue to bless this podcast. Holy Spirit, you just continue to blow on it and this fire. And we are now in X amount of countries around the world and all 50 I mean, we are just blessed, God. And we know it's not me and Bill's doing, but it's your doing. And we really appreciate the hard, tough conversations. So Holy Spirit, as we get into this conversation today about Geechee Gullah, about slavery, about all the things that really make your people and others tense and frustrated and feel that we have to take a side. We're not talking, God, about taking a side. Holy Spirit, we ask you to help us hear each other. Listen to each other, God. Hear it and listen and try to find common ground. God, we thank you. We praise you and we love you. In Jesus' precious name, we pray and believe. Amen. 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 How you doing, buddy? Man, Bill, I am doing great. The good-looking black guy on tomorrow is traveling down to Abbeville, South Carolina, to give a speech. Uh, They're putting up a historical marker on the Harbison Cemetery. Mm -hmm. Harbison Cemetery is a old cemetery, which four of my ancestors are buried in, in 
Abbeville, South Carolina, a little bit of brief history. It was Harveston College, one of the first colleges that right after the Civil War, some good church folk came and built to educate freed Blacks and it got burnt down. You know, um, the rumor is that members in the community, uh, the Klan burned it down. And once they burned it down, three individuals got killed there. So again, I visited um, that cemetery as a boy for so many different times with funerals there and all this kind of good stuff. So now I go tomorrow, they've honored me with the privilege to come and say a speech in the dedication services and everything else. So I'm feeling pretty good, Bill. Bill, I'm feeling pretty good. And I wonder what is my grandfather, my his mother, and his grandmother, who's laying in the grave along with my grandmother, what are they thinking that old Odell, that many said wouldn't turn out to be anything, is coming back to give the keynote speech? Wow. Wow. That's that's a talk about a story. How how old are the grave sites? How far back are we talking? Uh, in the 1800s. In oh, the wow. 1800s. And the thing about it, Bill, I knew my grandfather's grandmother. So I knew her. She died in 1968. I was born in 1960. So I remember as a young child, you know, I remember that and going to her funeral and then her daughter, which was my grandfather's mother. I remembered her. I think I was around 20 when she died. And of course, I remember my grandfather who was like the father to me. And I remember him and of course, my grandmother. So to go back to the small town of Abbeville, which prides itself as the birthplace and the deathbed of the Confederacy, it's just it's just amazing. Wow, wow! Now, were any of those relatives slaves? No, no. My grandfather's grandmother parents were slaves. Okay. Uh, we're still trying to figure out what plantation they came from. We think we have it narrowed down to one or two. One of them is the Calhoun Plantation, um, called the Millwood. And many people may have heard that name, John C. Calhoun. Um, so it's, it's a lot going on right now. We're just trying to figure it out and document it to the best of our ability so that those who come behind us can have an understanding of what happened and, you know, where do we go? And it's interesting. It's just a fascinating to me. I'm mesmerized by the whole process. Well, you know, in honor of Black History Month, this is a very topical uh, podcast related to it. And it's interesting. Do you know what country in Africa your 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 great great grandparents came from? I don't. However, I have some of my. I have one cousin, first cousin. That's how we say it in South Carolina. Who's a doctor in Milwaukee, and he's done the ancestry.com and all that kind of stuff. And he has some um, feedback, and I'm writing about that. I included his his feedback in my book that I'll be finishing up next month called Come Walk With Me. And it's really just a grandfather talking to my grandson, Legend, telling him all the things that I believe as a Black man he's going to need to know to be successful. And in the book, I say, Legend, will it be all right if some of our white friends' audience eavesdrop on this conversation? So the book is done like I'm talking to him, but at the same time, I'm talking to everyone else to give them an insight on how blackness works in a way. You mm-hmm. know, a lot of people will know, how, how does that really work? Or how do you really feel about slavery? Uh, everything. And these are the subjects, Bill, that has divided this country. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and you and I 
don't have enough sense or we're too bold enough to say, hey, we're going to we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it in a civil way that can really help people understand, not that they have to agree with us either way. And some would say, well, that happened 99 years ago, Dale. Um, why don't you all quit talking about that? Well, it kind of happened to my family. And when it happens to you, whatever it is, when it happens to an individual, maybe that individual should move on. Maybe that individual shouldn't move on. But I think the beautiful thing about America, this great country that I love, um, who's to tell someone when to stop mourning? Um, my, my mother lost a child, my, my baby sister years ago, about 20 years ago. And I still think she's in mourning because we went to a funeral the other day and my niece, who looks just like her mother, got married and my mother just burst out in tears. So who's to say when is a mourning period, when one should stop, when should one move on? Because everybody responds differently. Interesting. You know, in Abbeville, um, uh, Dory's family's from Abbeville. They had a general store there and a mill, I think. I think you and Dory talked about that. So it's kind of interesting. Out of all the cities in the South, <laughs> you're from Abbeville and my wife's family's from Abbeville. And now we have a podcast together. I think that's kind of interesting. Hey, you think that's interesting? Check this out. John C. Calhoun, as everybody know, was the eloquent defender of slavery, right? Everybody understands that. Well, they put him up in a statue in Charleston, South Carolina, years when he first died, changed the name of the street to Calhoun Drive and everything else. And a year ago, about in the 20s with Black Lives Matter and the whole movement, um, he was taken down from one of the most prominent places in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, now, believe it or not, his statue, Abbeville, is saying, hey, we will take the statue and put it up in Abbeville. So it's interesting how this thing won't stop, you know? Yeah, it's amazing. It's uh, It just keeps going and going, all these networks. Well, you know, one of the things I wanted to do um, was do some things on this podcast. I've been, you know, when you, you said you were from that part of the country, the Geechee Gales and all that, I, I started Googling. No, no, no. Geechee Gala. Geechee Gala. And Geechee Gala is the slave language and culture that formed from the slaves in the islands of low country of South Carolina. Many people come to Charleston Bill and see it as an antebellum Disneyland, but we see it somewhat differently. So thank you for helping the audience understand what it's all about. Well, you know, I pulled up, I Googled it, and it said the Gullah Geechee people are descendants of West and Central Africans who were enslaved and brought to the lower Atlantic states of North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, and Georgia to work in coastal rice, Sea Island cotton, and indigo plantations. So I started get, digging in a little bit further, and I came across something that talked about the land. And I'd like to play that for you, and then we can talk about it. So um, I'm going to, audience, what I'd ask you to do is if you're not driving, just close your eyes and let your brain wander as these words are said through the author. They appeared along the southeastern coast, a group of shallow islands that rose from the receding waters of the Ice Age. Fragile bits of land anchored by tenacious grasses and pebbles, the islands moved constantly with the royal of the tides and the violent storms that buffeted the coast. 
Over time, the islands began to form themselves as the plants and shrubs took hold. They would continue moving to the west, changing their shape, always searching for a place of permanence. Dotted with swamps, marshes, and bogs, and tempered by the sea breezes and the hot, humid air, the islands were rich with flora and wildlife. Corn, pumpkins, and beans grew in profusion in the peculiar mixture of sand, silt, clay, and natural matter. Wild grapes hung from the boughs of the great oaks, and walnuts and pecans rained down when the warm breezes blew through. Huge herds of white-tailed deer roamed the coastal lands, while black bear stalked the swamplands, and wild turkeys sounded their warnings from the lush underbrush. The waters, both fresh and salt, abounded with mullet, brim, rock shrimp, spots, oysters, and crab. Then, as always, following the trail of wildlife came the ancient people. At first, they fled the raids of the north. Then they sought the warmer climes and the gentler breezes. When they came upon this land of abundance, they gave praise and offered tribute to Mother Earth for her kindness and generosity. Settling along the shores, they called their new home Chikora. It was the first of many names that this land would have. Each tribe that settled the land would give the islands other names. San Miguel, Guadalupe, Gaul, Chira, Edisto, Johns, St. Helena, Dolfusky, Kiowa, Wadmala. By the time the African captives arrived, the land would be known as the Sea Islands. It would not be the land of refuge for these people, for they had not come willingly. Herded onto the ships that would transport them across the Atlantic Ocean, the peoples of West Africa, stolen from Gambia, Angola, Benin, Sierra Leone, Niger, and the Gold Coast, would arrive in Charleston, South Carolina, destined for the harsh work on plantations throughout the South. For some, the trip would be even longer to the far reaches of Texas. For others, it would be a short trip down the coast to the rice and cotton plantations of the Sea Islands. For most, it would be the last trip of their lives. They would spend their entire lives on the islands, laboring from day clean to day done. Clearing the land, dredging the swamps, building the houses, planting the seed and harvesting the crops. They would rarely see their white masters, who had long since quit to the mainland, escaping the heavy, humid air, the sulfurous swamps, the poisonous snakes, and the black swarms of mosquitoes that brought the plague of malaria. It would be a severe life, but left to their own means, they would survive and thrive, raising their families, praying to their gods, holding sacred the ways of the lands from which they had come. They would trade, share, and learn from the ancient people who still walked the islands. And from this blending of old and new came the unique culture and tongue known as Gullah or Geechee. You know, it's interesting. I've heard 
Growing up in Charleston, Bill, I've heard those names of those islands my whole life. Edisto Island, Wadmala Island, Defusky Island, all those names, it just brings back so many memories as a child and understanding. And now as a grown man and understanding the history of it all on how the slave trade got started and understanding the economical aspects of it also, it really helps me. It helps me a lot. And like I was telling you, this book I'm working on, I've done so much research that it's almost like this stuff is coming out of my ears. But when it's all said and done, you know, they were my family members. So those were my family members who came across uh, in those boats, um, shackled. Um, it's just, it's just, it's just amazingly horrible on what happened. Coming from Parma, we 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 didn't know much about the South, um, let alone those islands. Um, and some of those islands today are very, very wealthy people have resort homes on it. I mean, Hilton Head and Kiowa Island. So I kind of viewed it as that, you know, as a place I hadn't thought about that the people were brought over from those countries because they had, they had trade skills and they, they'd learn how to do rice and they worked in the rice fields and uh, they had cotton, they did cotton. And so, it was amazing that uh, how how as you if you start reading about slavery and how it was in the South, uh, basically the slaves were they didn't have as much rights as uh, some some animals. Uh, yeah, it was amazing. Bill, you know it's interesting when you would say that. Allow me a few minutes to kind of explain two things to individuals that may be listening that may know, but may really not know. And I think this is important. First thing, the slave trade was a triangle. And let me explain. The ships, well, first, it was a investment. This wasn't individuals. These were companies. A company would uh, get investments and say, okay, it's going to take us X amount of dollars to um, sponsor an expedition. And the expedition was like this. We take a slave ship from England and we load it up with raw, not raw goods, manufactured goods. So you sail it from England. That's the first arm of the triangle to Africa. You sell the goods in Africa and you buy slaves or you buy enslaved Africans from Africa. You know, the money you made from the goods, you buy the slaves. Then you take the slaves across the Atlantic to the quote unquote new world, the Carolinas, the Caribbeans, and then you get there and you sell the slaves and then you pick up raw materials, cotton, tea, rice, indigo, furs, rum, and then you sell back to England. So that triangle was going for hundreds of years and people would invest in the ships, buy insurance on the cargo because my ancestors were considered cargo. That makes sense. Yeah, that's just, you know, you, you don't think of those details. You just think, well, they're, they're enslaved people. And, um, but you don't understand how that mechanism started uh, from the standpoint of the economics of it. It was, it was a business deal. It was a business deal. And the other part about it, you always hear of the diaspora. I don't know if you're familiar with that term or the middle passage. Well, the Middle Passage, let me explain what that means. What's so important for people to understand that in America, 
African-American history usually starts with slavery, but that's not true. As a people of African descent, our history started in Africa. Civilized individuals in Africa, great empires in Africa. If you're not careful, um, people will make you think that white Europeans came to Africa and picked my ancestors out of a tree and gave them religion. So it's like, we saved your life. We saved you. We gave you culture, religion. That's not true. When you go back, if anybody would like to, you go back and do the research. Ancient Africans were doing all kinds of crafts and stuff with iron and everything else way before this. So a lot of these individuals, to your point, when they were kidnapped from the continent of Africa, some, not all, had certain skill sets too. Some, not all, had certain knowledge. Some, not all, were just like any other parts of civilization. Some were royalty, some were paupers. Now, what they didn't do when they came to America was a different language. So if someone dropped you in a different country with different language, different customs, different laws, you'll be in a situation that may not be the best. But let me talk about the middle passage. It was three passages. You had the beginning, the middle, and the end. The beginning passage was if they caught you in Africa, and a lot of slaves were caught by other Africans. Let me explain. If this tribe went to war with another tribe and they captured a certain people, we may say prisoners of war, POWs, they took the POWs and turned them into slaves. And then when the Europeans came, they said, hey, we have some slaves. Let's trade you these slaves. Now, the first passage was whatever part of Africa that they were caught in, they had to march them from there to the coast where the ships were. That's called the first passage. In a lot of cases, a lot of people died because a lot of people fought for their lives and got killed, or some people just died from disease or exhaustion. Okay, so that's the first passage. The second passage, what they call the middle passage, is once you got on the boat, and you sailed across the Atlantic. A lot of people didn't make it, Bill. A lot of slaves got sick. And if you had disease, then it's like, uh-oh, one bad apple will spoil the pile. So you know what you do. And I'm not trying to make fun of it. You take that sick person, throw them, him and her overboard. You would take the slaves out a couple times a week to get fresh air and salt water to kind of bathe them, for lack of a better term, or rinse them off. Well, some slaves decided... I'd rather dive overboard than become a slave. Because what happened a lot on the slave ship bill is this. The slave catchers or the slavers on the ship would rape the young women. Now, the thing about it is, you think about this as a Christian. You say that these people are inhumane. You say that these people are not really human. You say that these people are cattle, cattle property. But why are you having sex with them? Why are you uh, raping them, little boys and little girls? So the interesting thought about the middle passage was this. A lot of great white sharks would always follow the slave routes in the ships because over the years, they knew that bodies would be either thrown overboard or jumped overboard is always would be a meal. Now, once they landed, the majority of them landed from the Middle Passage in this place called Charleston, South Carolina, at a place called Gatson Wharf. 
Now, Gadsden, you may have heard that name before because that's the same gentleman who invented the Gadsden flag. It's a yellow flag with a rattlesnake crawled up on it. Don't tread on me. Okay, so now that's the middle passage. Now, the third passage is once you get into Charleston and you got sold, you had to be taken to a plantation as far as Texas or in Charleston or someplace else. So the way they took you to your final destination, that's the third passage. So the first passage is you got caught, take you to the um, coast, to the coast. The second passage that everybody talk about is across the Atlantic Ocean. And the third passage, once you got in Charleston and you got sold, you would go someplace else. So that's what's called the middle passage in the black diaspora that you hear about, or some have never heard about it, is the call of all black people or the descendants of all the Africans that got kidnapped from Africa. And they're all over the world now because slaves went everywhere. So that's kind of the two different things I want to talk about. The triangle, the whole thing on money, business, and then the middle passage. So that's kind of where we are, Bill. And when you look at it from that perspective, it's a lot to get upset and angry about is there. And it does anger me. However, I'm trying to get to the point where I can talk about it and dissect it from a different perspective. So your thoughts, Bill, before I show you something that I want to get your opinions on. Um, I didn't know all that. That was, you know, I knew parts of it, but, you know, I didn't know all of it. And uh, as, as you learn more and more about black history, um, you got to start back there because that's they 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 were brought here not at their own making quite frankly um so and what my lens was looking at parma in cleveland growing up in the 60s when they had riots after martin luther king died after uh, kennedy died uh robert kennedy uh you know and then uh, the vietnam war you know they were burning down Huff, which was the black area. And, uh, and we as white people would look at that and say, man, what are they doing? They're crazy. They're shooting at the police. They're shooting at the fire department. So there was no history of how did they get to that area? And why are they all, why are they all cloistered in one area in Cleveland? That's that would, in a lot of big cities had the same thing. I mean, it was, there was Watts and there was other things. Uh, so, uh, um, so that's my take on it. You know, it's interesting. It was something called redlining, meaning that when a lot of people came from the South, because the majority of African-Americans were slaves, of course, and the South had a lot of plantations. And back to the antebellum Disney World, people go to Charleston and they ride horse carriages and they visit the plantations and they have weddings on the plantations and they do all these things. But at the same time, it was a rule bill called 1% black blood. I don't know if you ever heard that before, that if you had at least 1% black blood in you, you are considered black. And let me tell you why that was important. Early, I talked about the whole thing of coming over on the ship, how the young uh, African captives were raped by the slavers. That was a big deal with them. Well, when they got here, and history book doesn't talk about this. 
a lot of the whites masters had mistresses. And the crazy thing about it, Bill, is that they would sleep with these young ladies and their slaves and they would have babies for them. Well, the baby would turn out white, black, you never know from that perspective. So the rule was if you had 1% black blood in you, 1%, 1%. So you could come out looking as white as you are, Bill, but if your mother was black, you were a slave. Now think about this. The slave master is coming in, having his way with this young lady, bringing her into his house, whatever he's doing. Now the white, uh, his wife is furious with the black woman, the slave, for having the master's baby. Now, so now the master take advantage of her. And now the white woman who's his wife beat her when the master's not around because she's having relationships with her husband. And so the slave got caught in the middle. What can she do? If she doesn't submit to the master, she gets sold away or he'll kill her. If he does submit, now the his wife is upset. And so if you look at it like breeding puppies or breeding any animal, the more babies that slave women had, then the more the masters could sell them. So if you look at it like a litter, no disrespect to anyone, but I'm trying to give something people can understand. So if this woman came in and she was a good breeder, and just say she had 20 kids, those are 20 individuals that the master took and sold Bill for profit or could use for free labor. So when you think about it, that makes a difference. Now, Bill, I'm getting ready to do something now and I'll explain to the audience. I'm getting ready to put a piece of cotton in Bill's hand. Bill, have you ever picked cotton before in your life? No, I haven't. I've seen, I've seen folks with cotton touch it. And uh, I, I know it's low. So to pick it, you got to be bent over almost all day. And uh, I noticed that the piece you gave me has some pricklies on it, kind of like puncture, almost like thorns. Um, so what's the deal? You, I guess you, you don't have gloves, right? No, no, it wasn't any gloves. It was, you've heard the term, we in high cotton. Have you ever heard that term? Yeah. So if the term high cotton means some cotton plants grow very tall. So when you're in high cotton, that meant you, man, we got it made. We don't have to bend over as much. So our back doesn't hurt for hours and day. And the prickly part, that's called the husk. And what it does, it would cut you. If you think of a paper cut, just think of a hundred times more than a paper cut. These things were sharp, but over time, you learned how to pull it your, like anything else. Your hands got calluses on it, so it wouldn't cut you. And you just learned how to do it. And the fact that they had it all timed out on how much cotton should an average slave pick a day based on age, experience, and everything else. And the big thing was, if you were very good, if you could pick 100 pounds of cotton in a day, you were like, that's it. And since you were under such uh, oppression and you could make your slave master or your overseer proud, it's like bragging rights. I could pick 100 pounds of cotton a day, or I could have... Uh, X amount of children, because that's what made the slave master happy and happy with you. So, Bill, that cotton that you, you hold in your hand right now, that's what my ancestors had to pick. And now I'm giving you something else, Bill. This Confederate money, you know, this money, a friend of mine um, told me about his family. His family used to live in Richmond, Virginia, 
And they had a lot of Confederate monies, a safe full of Confederate money during the Civil War. And we were talking about it over coffee one day. And he said, Odell, and I said, hey, do you mind letting me have some of this Confederate money? So the next time we had coffee, a couple of weeks later, he had some Confederate money. So, Bill, when you look at this Confederate money, what does it remind you of? Uh, the uh, Confederacy. It's got pictures of Richmond on it. It's got pictures of some of the southern cities. It's got pictures of uh, Jefferson Davis and some of the some of the generals in the Confederate soldiers. So um, and they also have pictures of black people picking cotton. Interesting. It was almost like cotton was that staple good that underpinned the economy, because when you think about gold as underpinning, cotton was the agrarian equivalent to a certain way. You know, and now, Bill, I'm getting ready to put something in your hand that's very important to me, paid a lot of money for it, and they call it a slave badge. Uh, I didn't know about this. A, a mutual friend of ours brought it to my attention when he knew that I was doing this research, and a slave badge was very unique to Charleston, South Carolina. Let me explain it this way to the audience. If you had a dog tag, a dog tag is like a tag that lets you know who who owns the dog and all this kind of stuff. And you pay a cost associated with whatever municipality for it. Now they have the chips and all this kind of good stuff. Well, certain slaves in Charleston, South Carolina during a certain period of time had a tag. You had the owners had to buy a tag and let you know that this is a slave that has the right to be in downtown Charleston to practice a trade. Almost like if you came to my plantation and you saw these gorgeous uh, ironwork fences. And you're like, oh, wow, Odell, I want one of those done at my house. And I said, okay, well, hey, my slave Bill, I'll send Bill over there and Bill could do it, but it's going to cost you a, a, a certain amount of money. Well, over time, if Bill had a skill set, remember now, a lot of Africans that were brought over, they were brought over with skills. Rice was planted in America, but rice also was planted in Africa. A lot of crops that was done in America was done over there too. So people already knew how to do these things and people knew how to control water, how to dam water, how to refund water. So back to my point, so Bill had a skill and also Bill may have been an apprentice for 200 years. What I mean by that is that on the plantations, the plantations were self-contained. So if a blacksmith was doing horses or doing all this kind of stuff. It was a succession plan. You had to go in the apprentice program because you were a slave. So it's like, okay, my daddy was a blacksmith. My granddaddy was a blacksmith. I'm a blacksmith, my son. So all the secrets or all of the things over the years was passed down. So these guys was great. Now, so Bill's out in Charleston, work for other people. Word gets around that Bill is good. So Bill keep making more and more money for me. Why should I have Bill picking cotton in a field when Bill have a certain skill set that my friends admires and I can make more money off of Bill? So we get to the point where Bill and myself says, okay, Bill, I'm going to let you go to Charleston and you stay there for a month. At the end of the month, I need you to bring me back $6,000. However, anything you make above 6000 you get to keep it. And Bill, if you earn enough money over the next X amount of years, I'll let you buy your freedom back. So that was what the whole slave badge was, because these were hired out 
slaves running the streets, quote unquote, free. And a lot of white people didn't like it because Bill comes in and undercut them because Bill had a skill set and Bill didn't have to charge for so much. Kind of like how we do some people now who come in as roofers and we're like, hey, they'll do a better job on the roof than anybody else. But it undercuts because it's all about labor, Bill. So have I lost you, Bill? How does this badge feel in your hand knowing that one years ago, this belonged to an actual slave? Yeah, it says uh, servant on it. Uh, so this is yes. obviously a servant. And I think the data, it's, it's kind of hard to read. I think it's 1840 something. Uh, and there's a number. I'd be curious if they had a record of the number, uh, who it belonged to, but, uh, that that's interesting. You know, it, it, um, it's almost like, uh, giving someone a tattoo to identify themselves. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. a pin and, and, and heaven forbid you lose that pin. How, you know, you'd be in trouble in a number of levels, one with your master and two with probably the authorities. Um, so, you, you just felt that uh, totally controlled. And, and when it brought to my attention, I paid a lot of money for this. I, I'm, I'm debating about giving it to my grandson or donating it to the new museum in Charleston, South Carolina. I don't know yet. But the thing about it, Bill, is that I have grown. I could not have had this conversation with you 10 years ago. I couldn't have had this conversation with you 10 years ago. And that's just the truth of the matter of the whole thing. And as God has continued to deal with me and people like, well, Dale, have you forgive everyone? No, I haven't. No, no, I haven't. No, I haven't. But what I'm trying to do is a better understanding of what happened, how it happened and everything else so that it won't happen again. But a lot of times things happen to people, Bill. And slavery just didn't affect black people. Slavery affected white people also. And when you go back and look at those antebellum mansions and all this kind of good stuff, hey, just imagine someone taking your child from you and selling them, it, it's rough. And it's stuff we don't want to talk about. I call slavery Americans original, America's original sin. Mm. It's interesting. You know, you talk about you couldn't have done this 10 years ago. Uh, I was thinking about myself. Could I have done it 10 years ago? I don't think I could have done it at the level we're doing this, uh, as deep as we're doing it. And, and I think one of the reasons, you know, the show is called The Common Ground Show, but what happens when you find common ground, you can start digging deeper into some of these subjects because you've got the comfort that I've got your back. You got my back. We may differ on things, but we can go deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's the beauty of finding common ground with somebody. You can talk about things. I mean, you've educated me a tremendous amount on a lot of these issues. Um, and, um, uh, and so I, I thank you for that. And I love you for it and appreciate everything that you've uh, taught me. Well, Bill, and it's, and it's not a way to make you feel guilty as a white person or anything like that. That's not what I'm talking about. What we're trying to do is say we are friends. And as friends, we can have conversations that other people may not have a white friend or a black friend to talk about it without getting so energized that it's not a conversation no more, it's a debate or it's an argument and everything else because we're talking about history. We're talking about history. When you held the cotton in your hand, that's cotton, that's real. When you, hold, when you held the Confederate money in your hand, that's Confederate money, that's real, we didn't make that up. And when you hold the slave badge, that's real also. So the good thing about it is we love each other enough. We trust each other enough. We've had enough 
uh, water over the bridge per se, that we could talk about this. But the good thing about it, Bill, is that we're not just talking for you and I. A lot of our listening audience is like, wow, wow. I, I, I Now maybe I could have a conversation with a friend of mine, a black friend, a white friend, whatever. And the, converse, the start of the conversation may be, hey, check out this podcast, check out this episode. Look, look what they're talking about. What do you think? Yeah. And start the conversation off of that because it gives you a a toehold, so to speak, to have a discussion. Uh, you know, it's interesting as, as we're talking, you know, m- m- as a white guy, older white guy, you know, I see some of the black uh, issues, uh, particularly uh, shootings and, and crime and people with their uh, pants down with their underwear showing and all that stuff. And that's, you know, that's the image. Oh, look at that. That's crazy. But there's the other side and that, that's real. I'm not going to deny it. But on the same token, I, I see some white people that I look at and go, really? That's what you're, that's how you're going to act. That's how you're going to behave. That's how, what you're going to wear. And so I have on both sides, but then once you get past that, you know, you could, you could stop there and just re- be against all those things and be ugly against all those things, or you can recognize them, acknowledge them. You don't have to agree with them, but then say, okay, where is there some common ground with an individual that I can talk to and maybe help me understand why is this person acting this way to make it so odd, you know, and we have certain standards that we want to live by. And, uh, and, you know, I was grown up, you know, we often talk about, what you learned on grandma's front porch and a lot of the standards that are, you know, you were taught, Hey, you don't do that. Okay. You help your neighbor. You don't steal from your neighbor. You don't, you know, you dress appropriately. Um, but some people, they, they don't have that kind of background or they don't have a father figure in their life. And, uh, and so, you know, it's interesting to black women raising young black men without the support of a, male in the house is a tough thing is a tough thing it's it's tough on white people too uh but you add to it poverty hunger crime uh lack of education i mean there's just a lot going on there well what do you think the end result's going to be <laughs> it's not going to be good and i would say to what you said is amen i don't like when I see individuals, black or white, mostly black boys with their pants down by their, not the knee, because I, I know they can't walk that way. I don't know how, I don't even know how they walk with those pants like that, showing their underwear. I'm sure it's a fashion statement, but I don't like it. However, I look beyond that to your other point on crime, uh, black folks shooting, killing, and all this kind of stuff. I despise that also. However, I don't want you as a white person or anyone else to say that's because of poverty. It's a, I grew up poor. It's a lot of poor black people, just like there's a lot of poor white people who don't commit crimes. So what I would like our audience, so I would like you as a white person to always understand is that don't paint everybody with the same brush. Let's be careful with our bias, prejudice, and stereotypes and me the same way. Because what I don't want to do is get robbed by anyone white or black. I don't want to get shot by anyone white or black, anything else. But poverty, a lot of people, and I grew up in public housing with a divorced single mom. So I could tell you about that. It didn't make me a criminal. 
a criminal is a criminal. And a lot of times people say, well, the reason why they're doing that is poverty. No, no, that's not true. The reason why they're doing that is because they want to do it, Bill. The reason why they're doing it, they want to do it, whether it's white or it's black, because you took a choice because I've never shot anybody. I've never robbed anybody. I've never did that craziness. So with that in mind, and I'm no better, no worse than my black brother, sister, or my white brother, sister. So I just think that, and that's one of the things that really bothers me about my good Democrat friends on the left. You may call them a bleeding heart liberal, make excuses for everything. And my good Republican friends on the right blame for everything. So people like me, who are very a Democrat, but kind of conservative, but at the same time, proud to be a Democrat, I think we take our biases and let it get in the way. But as my friend, I agree with you that Black fathers not in the household is a problem. Mine wasn't there for me. Mine was not there. So my grandfather stepped up and gave us an example of how do you work? How do you go out and work? How do you earn your pay? How do you do those things? So with me saying that, what happened to the young Black boy, the young white boy, who don't have that male role figure, role model in their life, and maybe, just maybe, I don't know, that role model is the dope dealer, white or black, um, is the uh, pimp, white or black, is the gang member, white or black. And so maybe that, Gavin, they kind of move toward that person who, instead of pray, P-R-A-Y, for them, that person's prey, P-R-E-Y, owned them. That makes mm. sense. Yeah, it does. And you, you made me think of a story out in California. There's a evangelical pastor. I can't remember his name, but uh, he tells a story about uh, the, the, they were in uh, the, the uh, Watts area of Los Angeles, one of his church, and uh, obviously a lot of gangs. And one of the gang members, not the leader, but one of the senior gang members started coming to his church. And he saw him sitting in the back. <clears throat> And uh, he befriended him and, uh, and he asked, you know, why is he attending? And he says, you know, I, I just decided I, I probably need to come in here and, and listen for a while. I've been through a lot of tough things and he would show up maybe once a month. Then he started showing up every Sunday and the pastor became good friends with him to the point he wanted to be baptized and change his life. So he baptized him. And uh, after he baptized him, uh, the gang member didn't show up for six months. And uh, so he fought, and then one day he showed up. So the pastor asked me, he says, you know, what's, what's going on? What, what happened? Everything. Okay. He goes, well, you know, when I got baptized, I thought the Christian community would come around me and surround me and be part of my family and help me. I heard nothing from anybody. He said, when you get, indoctrinated in a gang the family of the gang gets behind you and they take care of your mom wow. they take wow. care of your cousin if you need wow. food they give you food they take care of you and the person i was expecting that same kind of welcoming and support after i got baptized and it didn't happen so it took me a while to get over the anger that no one supported me and it's interesting, and I don't think, and I don't know, and I'm not trying to come to the gentleman's defense, so audience, excuse me if I do, I would assume he wasn't asking for a handout. He was asking for fellowship. 
Yes. I was assume he was asking for fellowship because I remember when I first got saved. Oh, my God. That's a whole nother deal and got baptized in the church I was in. People like, well, you got to be speaking in tongues and all this kind of stuff. Well, I tried, but nothing came out per se. And I'm not a hypocrite. I'm not like, I'm just going to come up with some. No, no, I wasn't going to do that. (laughs) And it's just interesting, Bill, that you would tell that story because sometimes as Christians, we, our houses of worship can sometimes, not all, look more like a country club or a social club or fraternity or sorority than whosoever come. Yep. Yep. Whoever God sends is like, okay, God send them, but send them just like us. Because sometimes at Sunday, 11 o'clock Sunday worship service, we all know is the most segregated time in America. And as we wrap this up, you know, you think about, I think what we can get out of this bill is that our audience, our friends, they find common ground. Don't be afraid or don't be enraged or don't be intimidated about the subject of slavery. Talk about it as a subject versus denying it or celebrating it, all this kind of stuff. It's just talking about it, trying to understand, questioning, not questioning someone like they're on a witness stand, but questioning for a better understanding. Because today, someone may have not have known about the, the three trade triangles from Europe to Africa to the New World, or someone may have not known about the Middle Passage, the first passage from the time they were caught to the coast. The second one, second passage is going through Atlanta. The third passage is going from Charleston to wherever else the slaves were going. People might didn't know that. Mm-hmm. So if you give people knowledge and understanding, then we're not saying change your mind because people are going to believe what they want to believe. But we're saying, here's some facts that you could go and check out and see if it's true or not. And if you choose to let facts get involved, fine. If you choose not to, that's fine. But at least you're thinking and you're trying to find common ground. Yeah. Amen. Amen. And you know, you made me think while you're doing that, when you're folks, when you're trying to find that common ground with that individual, uh, kind of think of it as riding a bike. When you first start riding a bike, you have training wheels on and, you know, because you don't have the balance, it takes some time. Then eventually you pull those up higher and you start getting lower. Somebody's holding the back seat and you eventually get the hang of it and you can take the training wheels off and ride a bike. And once you've gotten to that point that you can ride the bike and have that relationship, you never need training wheels again to develop those relationships. You can wow, step I into that. that place. You can step into that place because you've been there, done that, know how to ride a bike. So uh, with that, I think we're going to close. Do you want to close this in prayer? I will, but I want to ask one question to the audience and ask them to respond back on our email. They know how to reach us on email. Bill, and I'll ask this to you, Bill, as a Black person, ask the question to a white friend. What Have you ever looked at a white person, Bill, and said to yourself, that person looks Black? With facial features, yes. Yep, absolutely. How did you think that happened? How does a white person look black, Bill? Had to be some some intermixing early on. There you go. Because DNA doesn't lie. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Bill, did I tell you I love you? I love you too, buddy. These are some tough conversations, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they are. I'm looking forward to traveling with you coming up. 
All right, we're going to England, I think, right? You're going to England. We're going to Nashville first for a podcast convention. Oh, that's right. We're going to Nashville. I'm, I'm way past Nashville. I'm, I'm international now, baby. I'm trying to get international. <laughs> hey, let's close it out with a prayer. Father God, just thank you how we can sit and have these tough, so sensitive conversations, so sensitive that if you use the wrong word, people want to cancel you. If you say the wrong thing, people want to disown you. But also, God, by saying this, people also want to embrace us. So, God, we pray for those who want to cancel us. We pray for those who want to disown us. And we pray for those who want to embrace us. Because Jesus set the example. He said, they know not what they do. God, we believe we're following your will. And we know following your will is not easy. It was a cross for Jesus. And it's a cross for me and Bill on Common Ground also. So God, cover us with your blood. We ask the audience to pray for us and help us continue to walk in your wisdom and understanding. God, we don't want to offend folks, but we do want them to be comfortably uncomfortable as we look at these things that divide your people. So God, we thank you and we praise you. And as Bev's grandmother would say, you know it with Danya Fa. I ain't got to tell ya. Amen. Amen. Find Bill and Odell online at thecommonground.show. This podcast is a production of BG Ad Group. Darren Sutherland, executive producer. Jeremy Powell, creative director. Jacob Sutherland, director. All rights reserved. This podcast is proudly sponsored by... Whether you're a big, medium, or small business, managing and growing the bottom line is important. Focus CFO brings the experience and financial acumen of a Fortune 100 chief financial officer to your company at a fraction of the cost. PNL help, internal reporting processes, or any business transitions or events. Focus CFO will help you and your team have a CFO in your company's back pocket. Focus CFO. Learn more at focuscfo.com. This podcast is brought to you by Yes Weekly, the triad's largest circulated and best read weekly magazine. You can also find us online at yesweekly.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yes Weekly, your trusted news leader for local arts, entertainment, music, food, and more for nearly 18 years.